0: Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages.
1: We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside.
0: Basically, we're just here to talk about books.
1: We're so glad you're joining us.
0: Hello, welcome back to Better Words. Hi, Caitlin. Hi Michelle. How are you going? Still in lockdown in Sydney.
1: Yeah I'm, I'm still so sorry. in lockdown. Honestly it's like um, someone the other day asked me how I was and I was like I'm the same. Every day is the same. Yeah like, every day is the same. Yeah but I did finish knitting a pair of socks. <gasps> you finished your socks. I yeah. did. <laughs> so if anyone's curious there's a whole highlight on my Instagram of this journey. It's taken me like several several weeks
0: to knit a pair of socks (laughs) we um we do try to limit the lockdown talk on this chat but I I thought it was funny because we actually the interview that we're sharing today we talk about it in there and Sydney's lockdown had only just started and we recorded this like six weeks ago I know (laughs) and I am surprised it's still relevant so that's the only reason I bring it up now is that it's still relevant which if you don't laugh, you will cry. It's funny that we recorded that so long ago and we were like,
1: oh, yeah, start of Sydney lockdown. <laughs> yeah. We were like, oh, I'll see how this goes. And yeah. our attitude then was, oh, I can't believe we're talking about this again after last year. It was, you know, know. Yeah. all the attitudes so, of that, but
0: yeah. Sorry, but we are. But, you know, that does mean that you have lots of time to read, um, lots of things to do so this week we are each giving a recommendation what would you like to
1: recommend this week Caitlin? This week I am recommending that everyone picks up This One Is Ours by Kate O'Donnell. I think there will be a bit of a pattern with my reading in this lockdown that it's like fun way, a lot of escapism and everything like I this book is set while sixteen-year-old Sophie is on exchange in Paris, and I was just Amazing. like, oh, to be yeah. sixteen and like wandering the streets of like a European city and getting croissants and going to art classes, and I was like, oh my god, what a <laughs> <laughs> what a delight! It was such oh, a like dreamy read like a dreamy romantic lovely read and Kate's writing is so like beautiful and almost lyrical and I was just like oh to be in Paris um while simultaneously being like oh my god why did I never go on exchange like it's (laughs) it's kind of too late I don't think you can do this (laughs) can can I can I exchange my
0: adult life for another one please yeah like why (laughs) didn't I
1: ever go on exchange because I do like the idea of going and like staying with with, like, a local family and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like, even if I were to do anything like that now, which obviously seems unlikely with international <laughs> borders and everything, but the way that you do that as an adult is, like, the two-year working visa stuff like and you yeah. guys did. And you, But, say like, you have day to day find <laughs> people and get a job and, like, make your own friends. You don't just get to, like, stay with a family and go to school.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. With, like, no strings attached. Yeah, that is yeah. kind of cool. Imagine if you could do Airbnbs, but then you also just, like, go to work with
1: them or <laughs> go I to know. with them. <laughs> be so fun. yeah, be so fun. I, I mean, I've... it's like every rom-com where they, like, swap houses and, or, like, swap jobs or something. It'd be so yeah. much fun.
0: I wish I'd done an exchange. I think our school had one down to Melbourne, and I really regret, like, not doing it. But I literally was just too anxious about the thought of, a new environment and new yeah. I was like, oh my god people like honestly it held me back so much then and I didn't realize at the time
1: I know I just kind of never got around like I never got around to it and to be fair I don't speak any other languages and I didn't do any yeah. languages in high school so that <laughs> is a bit of a barrier yeah but like I never did like I could have done a uni exchange or something yeah. like to the yeah. US or the UK and I never did that and to be honest I, my birthday's at the end of the year and I technically skipped a year when moving into state when I was in primary school. So like I graduated from high school and uni very young. I definitely had time to like waste in inverted commas on an exchange. <laughs> Although
0: I always thought, God, I'd hate to do like a university exchange because I'd want to just travel and enjoy things and not be stressed out of my mind about all my you. assignments. Because we that. used to have to do a lot of group projects. We used to get a lot of American Exchange students at our university. Um and the they their lack of care for the things, I was just like, I'm so stressed out by your lack of care about this. Yeah, and but it's see if you were the exchange
1: student, you probably wouldn't care either. Because I don't know if the results You transition. say that, Kate but you know me. I know, Hold you on. probably would
0: care. <laughs> but you know, my psychologist the other day was like, I feel like guilt is like part of your personality trait. And I was like, yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, this sounds really fun. This it sounds was, like I need to read this. This sounds amazing.
1: It was so good and it was such a fun read. And it was it was truly like really escapist because I was just with Sophie like in art class being like, oh, imagine if I was like a good drawer. I'm not. But I was like, oh, well, like a dreamy a lifestyle. Um, and it also had that amazing element that I love and I wish I was more like this, that um, the book is set, I think it's technically set in early 2019 and at the beginning of the novel there's a terrorist attack some description in Paris and so everyone back home is worried about Sophie and she kind of learns more about, you know, the environment um, and political climate and everything over there and educates her new parisian french friends about the climate crisis and everything in australia and like their our perspective on it and they start going to protests and like do things and i'm like oh, what about us? it's so cool hence the um it's like a protest on the front cover of the bright blue novel if people have seen the cover so that is also a lovely element of the book like a really powerful passionate book from all angles
0: Amazing. Sounds incredible. I will read very soon. Um, I'm recommending a book that I could not stop reading. Love that. Um, I know, even though it's very chunky, it's like a good four hundred and fifty pages trade paperback, very big. Um, so I looked at it and thought, I don't know if I will get that finished in time to recommend it on this podcast.
2: Oh, and here, <laughs> ah, here
0: we are. Um, because when I started it, it's actually told through like um, like that oral history sort of interview transcript style. So it's very easy to read because it is just like people are just talking. You don't have like the the sort of you do have dialogue and stuff obviously, but um it's snippets of interviews and it's a really interesting take on the crime genre. So it's called True Crime Story by Joseph Knox. And what makes it so different and unique from any other thriller or crime book that I've ever read is that it is all fiction, but Joseph Knox makes himself like a character in the book and it's filled with like transcripts and stuff. So it starts with a letter from his, former publisher saying that you know they've done a revised edition without him and there've been allegations about him and all this sort of stuff so it reads like fact but it's all fiction so the whole idea is that he's put it together after the death of a friend and writer he knew she was investigating a death so the mystery of this novel is that this girl Zoe went missing in I'm pretty sure it's um, like 2008-ish, she went missing one night in December from her university halls in Manchester and has never been seen since. So seven years after the crime, um, a writer starts investigating it. She starts um, speaking to Zoe's twin sister, the other friends who were there that night, her boyfriend, her parents, all these things, and that's where the interview snippets are. Mm-hmm. And then she's sending those chapters that she's collating To Joseph Knox and so you get these email exchanges as well compiled as part of the book um, as she goes deeper into the investigation because there's no conclusion Zoe's missing they have no idea you know what happened or anything like that so the writer Evelyn is also like investigating that and as it gets towards the end things start to unravel even more and you do learn early on that she died in 2019 and that's when Joseph Knox came in and compiled like all of this stuff that she'd written. So there know. are bits where it's like this interview was conducted by Joseph Knox in 2019 and added in. And like, so it's, it's kind of. What a clever it's as device I know. for fiction. Like it's so clever. It's so clever. Cause when I first picked it up, I was like, hang on, is this fact? Like
1: Joseph Yeah. Knox? It feels like the kind of book confused. that you would keep like going Back to the blurb and being like, oh, my God, it's fake. That's right. And then, like, keep (laughs) I
0: had I had never heard of Joseph Knox before, but he has a best-selling crime fiction series as well. And, And I just was sort of looking before this, just had a quick scroll on Goodreads to see what other people were saying as well. And a lot of people were sort of saying that they had read and loved his other books, and this is very, very different from that. But I just love that he has put this whole twist on the fictional thriller genre but also by doing by so you, has sort of
1: crime obsession yes. victim all that yeah and it's
0: stuff. very yeah. similar like the the first thing I thought of as well is you know I love the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark and Michelle McNamara was wrote and was researching that into the Golden State Killer and was compiling that I mean this is written in a very different style her book is not interview snippets at all um but it was interesting that my first thought when I read, you know, that part of this was compiled after she died, I was like, Oh, that's just like, I'll be gone in the dark. And so it's, it's obviously very different that it's not inspired by that at all, but it's just interesting that it plays off that true crime um, sort of, I don't want to say craze, but you know, there's been an explosion of true crime books over the last few years. And to blend that with the fictional thriller genre is so interesting and because they're interview snippets and it's sort of presented a bit like when we talked about Opal and Neb, the final revival of Opal and Nev, it's presented in this way that it flows seamlessly and it's like cut from this person, cut. So, you know, well, you know, Andrew was standing here and he said this and then Andrew's like, oh, is that how she remembers it? Well, I actually remember it this way. So mm-hmm. it's very much like cut, 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 cut. And it's it's really interesting.
1: That is so cool. And on top of
0: that, the mystery was quite creepy. And as extra things got revealed, I was like, ooh, chills. (laughs) Like it was it was a little bit like, ooh, this is really creepy. And the ending surprised me. So kind of ticked all the boxes for me and just incredibly chunky book. But then I just raced through it and I could not stop reading it because of the way that it was written. And I just, yeah, I've never never seen anything like that before so yeah what a clever concept that's
1: really cool
0: yeah so I definitely when I started reading it I was like I feel like I want to recommend it no matter what the outcome as it happens I think it's a fantastic thriller mystery to read but I sort of thought oh even if I don't think it's that um good of a thriller I feel like I want to talk about it just because it's such a fascinating concept but it is so well executed as well so yeah very interesting (laughs) Yeah, it's really, really fascinating and like always interesting to see someone completely change up um, a genre and and completely present things in a new way. And I think that um, people do like those sort of found documents books. I mean, the Illuminae Chronicles yeah
1: yeah, that style isn't
0: it of like emails and transcripts and sort of stuff so it brings in a bit of that but yeah it is always sort of fun looking through and being like oh this is an email from these people and they sort of done the pages so it looks like it's all copied and yeah it's very interesting
1: god how clever
0: yeah I can't get over what a cool
1: concept it is it's a bit of a it's a (laughs) bit
0: of a mind bend because you get to the end and you're like he's like um he's written in a thing being like, you know, since the first printing of this book, like people have, you know, made allegations about this and this is my response to them. And so, you know, it's like the second printing. It's very, yeah, it's very meta. It's great.
1: Yeah. And so clever to have like the author be like the the character as well, because that is often so true in nonfiction that like the people who write these books, like end up in them because they're the ones interviewing people and everything like that like and I also it was called true crime story right yes yes simple yet brilliant title
0: (laughs) which is the name of like that's the name of the book that Evelyn's writing so she's calling it true crime story throughout and then like that it it just yeah so we're, we're presented this as Evelyn's story that Joseph Knox has put together this is true yeah not,
1: it's yeah It's. I love those so things though clever. where it's like you know people are like doing it blah, blah, blah and then at the very end they write a book and you realize this is the book <laughs> yeah. yeah like so many just, cool TV shows have ended that way
0: well actually um my favorite ending of that way was um Dirty John um oh, yeah. because obviously that started as a podcast and um newspaper article by the LA Times and the way that the TV show ends not to spoil anything obviously is she picks up phone call and it's like the reporter being like hi I'm Christopher Gofford. like I'd love to tell your story for the LA Times and she's like okay let's talk like and so yeah, you know that that's, that's like, really it's, cool. it's very clever yeah. it's very very clever I
1: know it's again like,
0: I mean this is complete- random as well sorry I was going to say, this is a random um, thing, but on the weekend, we actually watched Red Dragon, which is the prequel to Silence of the Lambs. Oh. And again, no spoilers by saying the ending is super clever in that it ends with Hannibal Lefter, like he's writing this letter and someone comes to his cell and is like, someone wants to see you. Um, and she wants your help with the case and he's like what's her name and I can't remember if the guy actually even says Clarice or if we just know that like this is where it's going to and I just like oh that's so clever that it just seamlessly connects
2: I I just love I just have to say
1: (laughs) the one that I thought of when you were telling the story that I loved was at the end of Jane the Virgin the TV show Jane had written two books i think like in the show and then at the very end there was a bit where like her son said something and someone was like i bet he'll be good at voice work and the narrator goes and for the record i am and then at the very end she's like oh. they're gonna turn my book into a telenovela and it and they're like who's gonna watch that and then it's like heart wink like you just did <laughs> like this whole series that is so clever I yeah
0: loved it. i love that stuff <laughs> i'm just such a sucker for anything like that i really really love it so also if you are like if you're listening to this and you know something we should like yeah if you have a we fun ending like a fun twisty okay. thing like that
1: yes let us know
0: let us know on at better words pub
1: <laughs> yeah um and now um another conversation full of tangents and yeah. chatting about all the random things in this wonderful world <laughs>
0: Before we go on to it though, we didn't explicitly state it in the interview, but it comes up a few times. But our guest is a HarperCollins author. um, But Caitlin, your position at HarperCollins did not influence that at all. We do include that disclaimer. our show notes but we just want to include it in case you can never be bothered to go and look (laughs) we always read our books first and (laughs) like good little school children we always read our books first um but genuinely we uh, like we choose to interview people based on their work so we really enjoyed this conversation um as Caitlin said lots of tangents and we really hope that you enjoy it too Our guest this week is the opinion editor of The Guardian Australia. She's previously worked as a journalist for News Corp and Fairfax, where she's reported on social affairs, politics, and regional issues. She's also worked in the Canberra Press Gallery and was a reporter for the Brisbane Times after starting her career at the Gold Coast Bulletin in Queensland. She writes commentary on feminism, inequality, and pop culture and appears regularly on The Drum, Triple J, and ABC Radio Sydney. She's also the author of the novel The Way Things Should Be, but today we're discussing her new nonfiction collection of essays, Trivial Grievances. Welcome to the podcast, Bridie Jabour.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining
1: us, Bridie. How have you been going now that this book's out in the world? It's been out for a week now that we're on the day that we're recording, I should say. Well, I'm in Sydney. It's not been probably not been the best week that it could have been.
2: So I've just watched all my amazing book launch party put on by my publisher got cancelled. My launches in Melbourne and Brisbane that I was meant to fly to got cancelled. I've just watched like basically every live event get cancelled and be uh, trapped in the confines of my home with two (laughs) small children. (laughs) It's fine.
0: We thought on this season we weren't going to have to discuss it again, but...
2: Yeah. yeah, we don't have to go too much into it, but basically no, no. it was obviously uh, not great to realise all this stuff was getting cancelled and, you know, I'm a bit, um, I was a bit concerned about my book being released in lockdown and people not wanting to buy it, but the response has still been incredible and there's definitely been people picking it up and my friends paid Nick Curios to record a special video for me. <laughs> consoling me about my cancelled book launch and that has absolutely made up for everything. I watch it all the time. Oh that's amazing.
0: (laughs) Yeah I was gonna ask if you've still done anything to like celebrate the official launch day and like you know sort of keep that vibe high as high as possible. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah well I got
2: the video from Nick and my brother who lives with us Uh, him and I got dressed up in suits on the day of my launch and took photos in the front yard, my husband and my brother, Yeah, (laughs) so I still got to post my awesome outfit to social media, but my brother and my husband have been very good sports about me doing just the tinsiest bit of moping around the house. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Which you're allowed to because of totally is a big thing. But also, now you're part of the very cool and very exclusive Lockdown Launch Club. Um, so, you know, you get to have that now as a memory forever and yeah. tell all your grandkids and stuff that, you know, not only did you write an amazing book, but it was published during this historic time as well.
2: I had a baby during this historic time. So first lockdown, <laughs> and I delivered a baby. So I already had a story about giving birth <laughs> in lockdown and now I've... Giving birth to a book in lockdown as well.
1: <laughs> oh, so many stories.
2: And I mean, you even wrote a
0: chapter on, you know, you don't have to be productive all the time. And here you are doing a book
2: and giving birth in lockdown. I mean, you making the rest of us look bad. Oh, I know, it's so obnoxious, <laughs> isn't it? I, I did feel the irony in that I wrote an essay about coming to terms with needing to achieve all the time and being productive and how to, it's okay not to feed into that. It's okay not to devote yourself to your job and you know, to figure out what's important in life, which is usually our community and our relationships with the people around us. And then while writing all that at the same time, I'm having my second kid and writing my book during the global (laughs) health pandemic.
1: (laughs) Well,
0: look, Caitlin and I both really enjoyed the book. And I'm actually really interested to hear Caitlin's take on it because Caitlin's a few years younger than me and I believe is literally on the cusp of the generation. So I'm 94. So still sort of on the cusp, but Caitlin's 96, right? Yes,
1: I am. So I guess it depends who you ask your, you know, age range of what's a millennial. I'm a bit on the cusp.
2: No, you're and- a lot Zoomer. I think 94 is on the cusp <laughs> as well. My si- my younger sister, I'm 88. My youngest sister is born in 94 and she had a completely different experience of school to me because of the smartphone. And I think that's where the generation cutoff should be. If you had a smartphone in high school, you ain't in my generation. You're not well, a millennial. I, <laughs> okay, I well, that would take
1: me out.
0: <laughs> I, I was not allowed a phone until grade 12. And then when I was, it was just like your basic. I don't think it, I don't, maybe it connected to Facebook. I can't remember. But I was allowed that in grade 12. And honest to God, my dad did not let me take it to school. I was only
2: allowed it after school. Oh my God, you should have been the youngest of four because by the time <laughs> my parents got to my sister, they didn't care
1: just like, yeah,
0: like go go for it yeah no so I I yeah I, I although I did see something funny today I was gonna say like I always feel like I was in the wrong generation but I saw someone post a meme today that was like if you were a child who was told you're an old soul it just meant that everyone could see you'd already like had anxiety and I was like oh yes <laughs> that was me um but yeah there was a lot of things in the book that I particularly like probably at the stage where you know I just got engaged so that marriage chapter I was like ah yes I feel this and you know talk I've got friends who are having babies and things like that so for me it very much was like yes this feels very very relevant to me right now um and I'm sure Caitlin there was still a lot in there that you were like oh I feel this (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although, you know, I'm sure if we actually did ask the rest of the team at HarperCollins, they would say that I'm not the target demographic, (laughs) that I'm too young. But, you know, I still enjoyed it. It was still, you know, so funny um, and a really great read. But as, you know, it says on the back of the book, Trivial Grievances started as an opinion piece that you wrote for The Guardian. So can you tell us a a bit about how that then turned into a full book?
2: So, the piece I wrote for The Guardian was really funny because it was in the quiet Christmas, New Year's period. And that's basically, that's not when you run very hard news. It's more when you run life stuff, thoughtful stuff, or stuff that's not tied to the news cycle. So, it can run any day because obviously we have fewer readers. Yeah, prepped usually. before you went on
1: Christmas break.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so you have, yep. exactly. So, you have like fewer readers during that period. And I uh, had been thinking about that for a while and talked about it with a few people. And so I thought, oh, this could be. A piece you know a summer piece for the week between Christmas and New Year's which is the quietest week and it went up in the morning on New Year's Eve so I just thought of it as filler like it was a good piece but I just thought it was filler overnight 600,000 hits that piece went around the world I got interview requests from New York I got interview requests from England I had emails from all around the world from like South America LA you know, across Europe, uh, there was a few from India. It was just wild. And then, you know, from my own city of Sydney and they were from a lot of people my age and also there was a few from older people who had kids my age talking Mm. about how they agreed with it. And it was basically about uh, millennials getting to their 30s and being particularly miserable, figuring out how their life is turning out and it maybe not turning out the way that they thought it would be. It's basically an existential crisis so but so when it got more than 600,000 and went around and I thought wow I have struck a nerve like this isn't just a um you know a life piece for summer this is something that people are actually thinking about so I put I I have an agent and I had talked to her about the piece and she said you should pitch it as a book you should do an entire book I said oh is it how would I do the book and she said well, you go away and think about it I can't tell you how to do the book <laughs> which is true you're like yeah. oh <laughs> damn yeah so I'm like okay okay mom uh, no, she's not like my mum at all. Um, so when I only did like a page and a half uh, chapter outline, it really wasn't that long. It was like each essay title and then maybe like two or three lines of what I would explore. And I said that I would interview uh, psychologists and demographers and writers and philosophers, and I did interview all those people. And um, and I also knew that there would be a little bit of memoir in it because as as you no, it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny kind of book because it's essays, but it's also a bit of journalism and also a bit of memoir. And, um and then the pitch got bought by HarperCollins, which was incredible. Such a big publisher. Uh, the publisher there, Catherine Milne is a legend. So after that, I thought, right. Okay. The bushfires had just happened over December, January. um And I was pregnant when I wrote the pitch. So I thought, okay, it's got to February February 2020, finally things are calming down. We're going to have a quiet few months (laughs) and work on this book. It is like, I can't
1: believe how weird I feel hearing you say that, even though that's how we all felt. But I'm just sitting here going,
2: she doesn't know what's coming. Oh, my God. And so I was meant to hand it in in June, and even that would have been pushing it in normal times. But then the pandemic happened, and, you know, particularly in um, March and April, uh my mom's a nurse my brother works in ICU my father works in hospitality my younger sister is trained Mm -hmm. to be a nurse there was like and I was freaking pregnant and you know this COVID was going around we didn't know so that was um a big distraction where I didn't write uh for a couple of months then and then got back into it so I ended up writing it over the course of the year and finished it in November uh, which is pretty funny to think of because I remember when I was writing some parts, I, I thought, oh, should I bother to mention lockdown at all or is it's going to be old old news by next year? So, 2021, please. no yeah. one's going to be talking about lockdown or COVID anymore. But I left uh, – there's little parts in there, obviously, yeah. because it's about what was happening. But It's not, unavoidable. It's, we all yeah, know it happened. It's not, yeah, and, but yeah. it's not a COVID book at all. But it was definitely like a very – uh, interesting time to put it mildly to be writing a book. Wow. wow. yeah, So weird. It
1: was really strange actually reading like just as you said some of those like little references to this COVID and the past year lockdowns and everything like that because you did write them somewhat optimistically
2: back in November. <laughs> past tense. It was all in past tense. It's never coming for us again. Yeah, Yeah, I did actually,
1: as I was reading it,
0: I was like, oh, is this a stylistic choice of like, let's keep everything in past tense for writing purposes? Or, you know, was it a a thing of, you know, optimistically, let's look at it this way?
2: Oh, I really thought that lockdowns were certainly yeah, we behind it was over. me we should stop by... talking about it but we thought it, it was like, over yeah, yeah and um and also it's pretty boring to write about like the reason that there is a, a big spanish flu novel is because lockdowns are boring like a global yeah. health pandemic is boring unless you're in the hospital you know where all the action's happening it's we're all staying inside i'm learning to play zelda Like it's not, it's not interesting to write about. So that's why I didn't write that much about it either. Like there are a couple of lessons to take out of it, obviously. And I think more broadly, the global health pandemic has made us really examine our lives and what we want out of them. And that was kind of funny because that was already what my book was about. So I felt like that was quite prescient, but I, yeah, I didn't go into it much at all. Like the actual... COVID and lockdowns. Yeah. Cause as
0: you say, it is, it is quite boring when you get down to it, like, ah, oh, another day that I woke up and I had breakfast and then I sat around wondering what I should do all day. Yeah, there's no action. There's yeah, no action. There's nothing. No,
2: no. It's just as <laughs> yeah. slowly, it's just a slow unfurling of your mind. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's a weird, weird time to be in. So let's have a, let's have a quick chat about some of the things that your book sort of covers. So there's, you know, we've mentioned marriage, uh, babies, career choices, travel. Um, we've also mentioned the, the preoccupation that we all seem to have with productivity and being productive and, you know, turning our side hustles and hobbies into monetized things or popular things or podcasts, um, <laughs> which, yeah, we're guilty of. Um, yeah. And, you know, although that's obviously rooted in your personal experience like you said there is a memoir element I really love the way that you've constructed it in that sort of style where most people will take something away from it that is totally applicable to them even though obviously you're sharing your own experiences I'm just wondering like as a journalist as well like do you think that's the journalist in you to sort of bring those other voices in and
2: and rather than just being like this is a straight memoir oh absolutely it's just this like when you've been trained to be a journalist it's this i've certainly got a deep impulse to think well that's what i think but what's the actual truth like what 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 where's the proof like what's the evidence and also i think it's interesting to get other voices in there i i don't genuinely don't think my life has been interesting enough for memoir really (laughs) uh so there was I thought that it just made it more interesting bringing those other voices in I learned so much from the people that I interviewed as well there's still things that they've said that I think about and apply to my life but you just it's kind of hard to keep the right tone where I don't want it to read like a news story obviously because it's more personal than that and you don't want to do that kind of essay structure that's like Personal anecdote, personal anecdote, statistics, expert, personal anecdote. So, I did work very hard to try and like weave it together, so that it was, you know, my small ideas going out to the bigger truth was quite organic. When reading, I hope that's what I was going for. Yeah, well, yeah. I think you certainly achieved I it, think and, you it are, yeah. and it definitely, like,
0: from from a reading perspective, it, it also, even though it's more of that essay style everything does there's obviously threads running through all of it but they also feel quite different it's not like and now this is the same framework for like a different a different story like, I think I think it was really well executed in that way um and it, it reminded it reminds me of a book that I read just before I left the UK called The Panic Years by Nell Frizzle but the difference is that that is more of a like straight memoir whereas I I really loved the addition of those other voices even you know not necessarily traditional experts but in the classic you know journalism way of just other people who are going through
2: this yeah and interesting yeah people's I love other people's stories and I'm always interested in it and I have read about Nell's book because when I was working on mine I think her she announced that hers was going to be published or it was supposed to be published it got cancelled and hers is about from what I read, it was about getting to your 30s and she calls it the paddock years. And I had another moment of thinking, ah, oh, see, it's not just me. Like there is, there is something in the air. Yeah, people are thinking about it. Yeah, you yeah.
0: are talking about it. It's much more, for anyone who's interested, it's, it's a, a great read as well. But it's different in the fact that it seems much more focused on the whole, do I have a baby? Do I not have a baby? Are my choices set in stone past a certain point? Have I come this far in life? and that's it like she she starts it with she wakes up I think she's 28 and her long-term partner and her breakup and that's the catalyst for like oh crap do I want to have a baby time is running out that sort of thing um so some of it I was like oh this probably isn't you know as applicable to me right now because I'm not in the midst of that but I know a lot of people will find that Um, really resonates with them. And that's why as well, I think with your book, I found more bits that I was like, oh, yes, like this really applies to me right now. And I think it's the sort of book that it would be really interesting, you know, for people to revisit it at different points in their 20s and 30s, I guess, and see which parts, because, you know, there will be people who resonate more with the motherhood parts right now and maybe you know, in a few in a few years, don't or whatever. So I think it's a really clever um, sort of structure for a book and something that I definitely want to immediately recommend to all my friends. Well, uh, the
2: feedback I've had is so interesting already because even though it's been out a week, there's a few people who know me who have already read it. Um, mm-hmm. I just got an email from a seventy four year old man tonight who, <laughs> uh, he's like so he's so smart. He's one of the smartest people. I've ever met and he read my book which is very generous and he wrote me an email about what he got out of it and he said at the beginning I didn't actually think I was going to get anything out of this I don't really have time for people talking about being in their 30s and then wrote me this lovely email about what he got out of it and there's another guy that I work with who's like very funny and uh, quite cynical and he's in his 40s and I really didn't think that he was the audience for this book and he's been texting me daily like screenshots of certain pages of the book mostly laughing like what the bits that he finds funny but he's just had two kids and he texted me one of the bits about having kids and said yeah this is exactly right and so um while you know the book is about been in your 30s and obviously I'm a millennial so it's from a millennial perspective I did think by the time I finished it that I hoped that there that other but that people who just were in their late 20s and 30s would get something out of it and it already seems to be having and I am quite blown away that someone in their 70s can get something out of it that's
1: so yeah, sweet that's amazing that is so funny and it is funny I think for people you know <laughs> to be reading the book and then Telling you what they got out of it. Like that just must be so weird. Oh, it's always terrifying.
2: I wrote. (laughs) It's especially because it's got personal stuff in it because there's a bit of memoir in it. So, um, yeah, yeah, so it's it's personal. So, you know, I'm oddly, I'm completely fine with a stranger or, you know, you guys reading it. That's fine. That's all good. But when it's someone who actually knows me day to day or the thought of like my um, mum or dad reading it it just terrifies me. But all these people obviously will, but it does feel a bit (laughs) exposing.
0: I, I feel exactly the same like when we do this podcast, for example, because sometimes we talk about personal things as well or, you know, different experiences we've had in relation to a book. And I'm like, oh, I always forget that my mom is going to listen to this. Like, hi, mom, She'll be oh, listening. I and and I, I just sort of forget that. And I find, I do find it so much weirder. I'm like totally, completely fine with people reading my stories, you know, on the internet. But yeah, the thought of my parents reading that or whatever,
1: I'm like, oh, Weird. and it's weird it gives you
2: the heebie-jeebies doesn't it? it yeah totally
1: does I'm exactly the same because people I work with you know keep saying oh what's the name of your podcast I literally have you know one of our authors on Lyra will probably listen to this hello like <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's weirds me out Still, anyway um <laughs> enough about that uh Bridie, do you think you have a favorite um essay or chapter or part of the book does any part of it stick out as a favorite for
2: you Oh, that's so hard to answer because I think that I do it then you have to read your book a lot of times with the editing process and it kind of mm-hmm. changed. Uh, the part that I like people mentioning is the part of the essay about siblings and your siblings form, having more influence on you than your parents. Uh, that's something I've thought that. about for years. Yeah. And I, I think that that's a funny one that people can relate to. I also, I, I do like the one about not having to achieve anything, even though I'm very bad. And applying those lessons <laughs> to my own life. And I think the first couple of essays that are basically just about existential crisis. Oh, see, I'm just going to list the whole book if I can. Yeah. Oh, just read yeah. the entire book. Yeah. The whole the book, my book. The first couple of essays about existential crisis, that, like I think was very interesting because I found out a lot when I was writing those parts as well.
1: I did really, really love the sibling chapters. I'm also, Michelle knows, I'm also very obsessed with people's relationships with their siblings and how that works and that whole dynamic. And she's an only child, so she has no experience with oh, it. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, But, yeah,
1: I'm the oldest of three. So reading a lot of the things about your younger siblings, I was like, oh, my God.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, man, you feel me. You, you, you completely Yeah, we're <laughs> on the same side. Because, yeah, I'm the oldest of four.
1: Yeah, it's... It's tough being the oldest. <laughs> Do you think <laughs> um, writing this book has changed your views about you know are millennials completely miserable? Are we more m- miserable than generations before us? Do you think that that has that exploring this in such
2: a big way, writing the book, has has your opinion changed? Oh, that premise absolutely did not stand up. And I knew knew that within the first three weeks of writing this book, (laughs) I thought, oh, well, Catherine, hope you still like this. Because within the first two essays, I say, no, this isn't the case at all.
1: (laughs) Uh, So yeah, at a moment where you worried, you were like, Oh, God, what am I going to do? I guess I just have to keep working on the book.
2: (laughs) No, because I think that when you're a journalist, you're used to going where the facts take you like it doesn't scare you that much. So I was, I think it's more interesting to start reading something and then realize, oh, this writer had their mind change, or this writer thought this thing and was completely wrong. That, I think that's the interesting thing to read. So no, it didn't. Um, I might've had one night where I thought, oh, what am I going to, like, how am I going to do this? And then I thought, oh, I'll just write it. And then it's fine. And, and the whole, I knew the whole book was never going to be about misery anyway. I knew that it was always going to be a lot more upbeat and broader than that. Uh, so, yeah, it ended, I just went – it was fine. I just went where the facts took me. It was all good when people said that isn't the case because I think I made that quite funny. And they said more interesting things than, oh, yeah, you are the most visible generation. They didn't just say, oh, no, you're not. They said, no, you're not, but this is the way that you are or, or the, this is actually the case. And I thought that stuff was really interesting as well.
0: Uh, like you said, like every generation sort of feels – Hard done by a bit, and you know there is that feeling. So to read that and think, oh yeah, yeah, I agree with this, and then be like, oh actually, yeah, <laughs> maybe my maybe my opinion needs to change as well. I think that just brings the reader in even more to the story and takes them on that journey as well. Which yeah, I think is is such a great thing in a book as well, where you don't feel like you're being preached at or anything, but you are there as well on the journey of discovery. And I I personally really enjoy
2: that. Yeah, it's good to be challenged.
0: Definitely. Um, so something else that happened, um, not long after you finished writing the book, um, you've written about it for the Guardian as well, is that you had quite a terrifying experience with a car crash. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And I guess what you took from that, especially after writing
2: the book as well? So, yeah, it was a few months ago. It was just after the Queensland border had opened again to New South Wales. My husband is from a small town in North Queensland and we, had flown into townsville and we were driving on the bruce highway on the way to his town and i was in the back between my two kids who were 10 months and 3 years and my husband was driving and we got hit from behind by a semi trailer on the highway and rolled three times and i was completely con- we were both completely conscious for the whole thing we knew exactly what was happening and oh, i put yeah. and yeah i put an arm in front of each of my children and didn't choose a favorite <laughs> Never lunch for the favorite. And oh, you know, I wasn't gonna hold the car up, but it was just an instinct thing. And put an arm in front of each children, just braced. And I was just like, please don't roll again, don't roll again. And then we rolled again. I was like, Don't roll again, don't roll again, and we rolled again. And that's all I was thinking. And I just kept looking at both of my kids, just making sure nothing had happened to them. And the triple O call, uh, bystanders made a triple O call and they dispatched a helicopter because of the seriousness of what they heard, which is a car in a hundred zone got hit by a truck and rolled three times. Usually even one roll is quite serious injuries. So they were expecting, yeah, they were, they were expecting a, a quite a full on grim scene, you know, if, if not serious injury, then probably death. And, We were all fine. We all walked away. And so the road ambers got there. They couldn't believe it. Uh, We still got transported to hospital because of how serious it was just to check everything. And um, I still couldn't believe it. Uh, There was off-duty ambulance officers who were there who helped us out of the car. And um, they, the road ambers was called off the helicopter saying, We don't actually need that. And in the hospital, doctors and nurses, actually multiple doctors and nurses, came and visited our room because the story got around the hospital. There's this family in the car who rolled three times and they're okay. They just never, ever see it, ever. So that was incredible. So, you know, it's near-death experience. Um, And that night I was staying in hospital. My baby was kept in overnight in baby ICU. for He's okay, but it was for observation. Mm -hmm. And so I was sleeping on a couch in his room. I had a broken shoulder, although I didn't know it was broken at the time. Um, and I was just lying there at 10, 10 o'clock at night just thinking, man, I'm so right in my book. <laughs> what I wrote is correct. Because <laughs> the, like, oh <laughs> yeah, the book broadly is about existential crisis and what happens when you have an existential crisis and you start to question your life and why you're here and if your life is turning out the way that you want it. And I think the point of the book, there's a lot in it, but the point of it is, you know, you can't be defined by your work and that's not the most important thing in your life. The most important thing is your community, your relationships with the people around you, be they your friends or your family, your partner, children, whatever. That, that's what matters the most. And, you know, when I had a near-death experience, that was all very you know, crystallised for me. The aftermath was amazing. You know, you're, after something like that and all of the shock I was in like a euphoric state for two weeks, you know, like nothing could bother me. Like when you have an experience like that. And I spoke to my mate who was also had a near-death experience and he said, yeah, you yeah, had the exact same thing. You're just like, you're almost high for like a couple of weeks after it. Just, just completely oh, on top of the world. Yeah, nothing like, can bring sky, you down. The sky is blue. The grass is green. We're alive. is this incredible? Like nothing. And then you're like, who cares? the Traffic, who gives a shit? Oh, they stuffed up my coffee order. Like whatever. Yeah, and if, I'm alive yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like all that small stuff and bigger stuff doesn't bother you anyway like I got some quite some news that would have been quite shocking in other you know normal life and I was just like whatever it'll be fine and it was so yeah
0: <laughs> yeah that's crazy wow so another
1: amazing story to tell your grandchildren by the way yeah, that's yeah. Insane. I don't know, I've oh, had a pretty hectic
2: 18 months to tell them about haven't I <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you really have. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's so that
0: is so incredibly lucky as well. And just so good that you were all okay and not, you know, seriously, seriously injured. That's incredible. But um, just, you know, I guess, as you said, the point of the book um, to sort of show you what is important and what isn't important. Um, I think that that resonated a lot because I was saying before we started recording that you know, I haven't worked in journalism for two years since we decided to move overseas. And I think that was one of the moments for me where I was like, I am giving so much of myself to this job and actually getting absolutely zero back. Like, yes, I have a regular paycheck, but having done, you know, two years of, you know, starting my own business and stuff, and I do not have anywhere near a regular income, I still frequently worry about whether I'll ever get another client again, whether I'm ever good at this, whether I, you know, if I could ever be a journalist again, because maybe I'm just, you know, crap. Like I still have all those existential crises, and even then a bad day, I'm still like, but I wouldn't want to go back to that particular job because of what I was losing that I only realized after I stopped. And I don't think that a lot of us in our like when once we start in the workforce I think a lot of us just feel like we then have to go we have to go on because we have pressures and you know I'm I'm incredibly lucky that I have a partner who said yeah like fine take time off you know find what you want to do and you know I can support us and stuff like that's so lucky but you know I also grew up in a household where my parents were like never leave a job if you don't have a job to go to like job security is everything you have to have a good job and you have to work hard and then you know life will be good and so undoing a lot of that sort of conditioning which where it's all reinforced socially as well has been really hard and it's still it's still hard I still have moments where I'm like oh my god I need to get a job even if it's like being a checkout chick at Woolworths just so because I, I need money I need a regular income and I love what you said in the book about like why do you need that though why do you need that money like that that whole chapter about sort of looking at what do you actually need to buy in life are you just sort of conditioned to do this so that you can buy these things all that sort of stuff I was just like wow that is that is just something that I could just read over and over and I don't think it would would be enough to really make me realize it's
2: the biggest uh it's the biggest lesson I've tried to teach myself and that I've learned myself and obviously we all need money um as you know that like I say in the book obviously but once you meet your basic needs of food shelter and no bill stress so a bill can come in and you're fine to cover it yeah how much more money do we need how much more money do you need because a lot of us I think certainly get caught in a trap of the next promotion or you know the next whatever we're earning seems to be the amount of money that we need and And by that, I mean, like, maybe your pay goes up by $20,000 in three years. And then once you're earning $20,000 more, like $100,000, for instance, you can think, yeah, I need $100,000 a year to live on. Well, do you? Or could you live on like 75, 80? And, you know, we can all be a bit more thoughtful about what we're spending our money on. And if we actually need it, because I think that we're definitely in a culture where you spend what you have in the bank and you think that you need that much and it is but also money is a terrifying thing as well it's absolutely terrifying and debilitating at times not to have it so I'm not saying that money doesn't matter at all of course it matters but yeah you, we should all think about how much we need and how much we want to work because the other thing like when you say you work as a journalist and You say, oh, how much did I get out of that job? Probably not much. But at the time, it just fills your entire world, doesn't it? Like we've all worked in jobs where they have felt so vital and so important and you feel like you're at the centre of something, whether that's a newsroom in Rockhampton or like a publishing house in Sydney, you feel like you're at the centre of something (laughs) that really matters. And they do to a degree and they're interesting jobs and they can be fun. But I, I think now, especially someone like me and you two are probably a bit the same, some people you know, hard workers, ambitious, driven. Yeah. I do have to remind myself, no, this, this isn't the center of my world. This, yeah. this can't be my life. And no, it isn't actually that important. If I turn up to this job every day, Yeah, every now and then? again, you have to be like, it's just a job. Yeah. It's just yeah. a job. Like- and the job ain't going to love you back. And the job does not care about you. And that yeah. is a, a big lesson that I had to learn as well. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, as, <laughs>
0: I don't, I want to be a really independent woman who doesn't need to say this, but it wasn't until I, you know, fell in love, had a partner that I was like, Oh, actually I don't want to be at work all the time. Like it just filled my space with everything because I let it. But then when I wanted to spend more time away from it, suddenly I'd set this expectation with other people in the office as well, that I would be the one who was there and I would pick up the slack for things. And I found it very hard to disentangle myself from, from that. And it wasn't until, you know, and as you say, like at the time, you think it's fine. I didn't think that I was that. I mean, I thought I was a of a. And mistress, you think there's moral value moral. in it
2: as well. Working hard. Yeah. You think that there's moral, like I, I'm a good person. This is the right thing to do to work so hard. And it shows something about my character that I work this hard. It's very yeah. easy to define yourself by yourself. And you even sound sheepish now saying, and then i got a partner <laughs> and I wanted to spend more time with him. Well, it's more important than that. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to, Become a housewife and devote your whole life to a man, but what's more important than being with someone you love, or hanging out with someone you love, and enjoying life with someone you love? And that can be your partner, and you know, lucky for you is, or it can it can be your friends as well. Like I see them as just as important in my life and just full of just as much love as my you know romantic relationship as well. And then obviously my annoying children too. I love them.
0: <laughs> I had I had such a huge, I had such a huge. I guess it was a bit of an existential crisis when I quit journalism because I, and I still can't say I wouldn't ever go back to it. I want to, I enjoy aspects of it. I just didn't like management at all. Um, Like being in the management position, but I was like, Oh my God, what do I, when people ask me what I do, what do I say? And there is that whole thing of like, am am I a journalist if I don't work as a, and it was this whole thing of like, what is my identity, if not my job? And I do like you say, like at, at the time, it's fine. And then something happens, whether that's, you know, you choose to leave, you are made redundant or something. And suddenly we've got to like reckon with this because our whole like twenties have been spent like building up this career and you're like, Oh, Oh shit. Like actually there is more to life and stuff. And, um, I, I saw a video on Instagram the other day with someone saying like the best management advice he ever received. And he said that it was, you know, that this job won't love you back and you need to set your own boundaries. Because at the end of the day, no one is on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd given more to that job.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it sounds so cliched as well, but it's something yeah. that's so hard for most of us mm-hmm. to remember. And mm-hmm. also easy to say, harder to put in practice in our real lives. Yeah. Yeah. Really?
0: Especially when there's boundaries involved and there's like, people rely on you in certain aspects and it does feel really hard especially if you're a people pleaser to be like oh no I'm not doing that um that's a whole other kettle of fish really but I hope that people um who read this book who maybe haven't had those realizations yet do take something from that and sort of think about it as well because that was definitely the bit that I read and just was like wow that confirmed to me that I'm I'm quite happy with how things are and stuff. Not that anybody needs to be worried about that, but
2: (laughs) it's just that's what you got out of it because that was, I think it was the essay where I did the most reckoning with myself and had the, and had the bigger, the biggest realizations I think was that essay because when I wrote that essay at the beginning, I don't think I actually really thought that stuff or, you know, really believed how much more important other things are in life than your work and your job. I've always been someone who's been very devoted to my work and it was when I sat down and had a big think about it and did a few interviews and read a lot that that's when my realization started to dawn so you guys like the reader definitely comes on that journey with me in the book because (laughs) I did not have those answers before I started writing that but yeah and it's something it's had that essay has had the biggest influence on my life as well and just I always have to remind myself your real life is not at work definitely and actually my
0: um one of my business coaches sort of um, says that she says like nothing in business is an emergency. Like this is your business, you run it. And nothing is an emergency, like, or just like very few things are an actual emergency. That means that you, you know, have to do it right. That second, you can take time, you can put your health first. And I constantly find myself needing to remind myself of that when I'm yeah. like, I need to do this. And it's like, actually, do I really need to? Yeah. I always liked that one.
1: Nothing in
2: business is an emergency. Yeah, there's a the a host of um the drum. I'm on the drum sometimes, which is TV, obviously, and it can be very stressful going on. You know, you're talking for an hour, and the host one day, Ellen Fanning, just before the cameras started rolling, said, "This is TV, not brain surgery." Let's yeah, have fun. Exactly. And yeah. I think about that all the time. Like, whenever I'm getting nervous about something, which is usually to do with interviews or broadcasts, I think, this isn't brain surgery. No one's going to die. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We like- were
1: even saying that at work. You know, we've said that multiple times throughout this whole pandemic and everything like that. Even in current Sydney lockdown, it's like, yeah, but all like, we all like our job, but what we do is, here is publish books. Like, we're not <laughs> medical professionals. <laughs> like, no one's going to die. Yes, yeah, no one's
2: going to die. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, that comes back to that. Nothing is really an emergency. We just make books. Um, yeah. yeah. Good books.
2: Like <laughs> don't to my like, life. You know, Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> but Not vital to everyone's, I guess.
0: Yeah. But I also found it funny the way you talked about that in the book of like, as journalists, especially, I think we can be like, yeah, we're so important. <laughs> we aren't really, we aren't as important as we think
2: we are. Oh my! I <laughs> get the biggest reality checks from my family because most of them are nurses. And my brother is an ICU nurse who treated COVID patients on ventilators. <laughs> <laughs> so like yeah. That so, is real, yeah. And fun. when I was finishing my first book, I would be sitting there in, in the morning like in my dressing gown trying and thinking this is so hard and he was living with us back then in the apartment in Sydney and he would walk in from a 12-hour night shift in intensive care and I'd just be kind of like eh, this isn't that hard
1: yeah just be like <laughs> oh that's right
2: <laughs> I even have those
0: realizations with um with my partner Jack because he does quite a physical job which I could never do so he is like a diesel fitter uh, mechanical engineer and he'll be like yeah like we'll do like 20,000 steps easily like it's so much physical work and I'm just there like oh, I just typed some words today um, and then I deleted those words and then yeah. I deleted sat it, for three hours thinking and then I wrote some more words
2: yeah and that's it and, and it was it, which is fine but as long as we don't think that it's uh brain surgery yeah or exactly. that our job is any harder than someone else's
0: Exactly. <laughs> Although to be fair, Jack always is like, oh my God, I could never sit at the computer. He is not someone to to sit still. <laughs> so yeah, I guess each to each their own. Um speaking of writing though, um, you know, I'm always fascinated to hear why other journalists wanted to pursue this career when I mean obviously we've said it's not brain surgery, but it can often be quite difficult. Um And it's not, you know, the most lucrative, neither is publishing books, sadly. Um, So why for you, why did you want to become a journalist?
2: Well, I didn't actually have dreams of becoming a journalist when I was a teenager, because I thought that it was really difficult to get into, you know, it's super, super difficult to become a journalist today. But even back in 2006, the industry was definitely declining. And you heard a lot, oh, it's really hard to be a journalist. And I was from a uh, country town in northern New South Wales so I just had no idea how to go about it or what to do so I just thought it was beyond my reach so I thought that I would uh, go into policy or something government policy and my principal uh, left these papers out for me one day with the office ladies and it was an application for a scholarship to Bond University which was also a cadetship at the Gold Coast Bulletin because I would always been interested in other people and I've always been uh, interested in writing, which are two things good. If you if you want to be a journalist, a so curiosity in other people is kind of uh, vital to that. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of like a pre- prerequisite. You have to be interested in other people. Uh, so he, he was the one who nudged me. I'll always remember him for it, nudged me in that direction. My life would be completely different without him. And I applied and got it, uh, the scholarship cadetship. It was quite competitive. I was quite shocked. And yeah, moved to the Gold Coast and I've been in journalism and I was 18 then. So I got to go through university while also working in a newspaper, which is just like the luck of that is so extreme. I, I feel I still feel lucky every day, 15 years later, that I got that and then I got to do that through university.
0: Yeah, and fun fact for our listeners, we were talking about this before, but I also went to Bond University a few years later and same thing, like I got a scholarship. Not I didn't get that. I don't I don't think I would have been good enough to get that. That was an incredibly um, yeah, as you say, incredibly competitive um, scholarship and cadetship opportunity. And honestly, I don't think my mental health could have coped. I barely coped with university. As it was.
2: <laughs> you would have been fine, Michelle. You cope with what's put in front of you.
0: I mean, I would have been fine, but I would have had multiple breakdowns more than I had already because um, I was very much in that stage of, I don't have anxiety. I'm fine and I really was not fine um but yeah I think easy to say that with perspective though
1: I think is, if you'd had it you probably would have
0: just done it's it so it's so much easier to stay with perspective but you know when I started my cadetship at the at the local paper in Rockhampton like gosh that was such a like oh I, ca- I can't tell you how much my confidence grew um, and it really was I, I'm sure this was like this for you too but just being chucked in the deep end of a newspaper and but there's something so exciting about being in a newsroom as well.
2: Like, Oh, it was so exciting. I have never felt more at the centre of the world, I think, than I felt in the Gold Coast Bulletin newsroom. (laughs) And, you know, now I work in The Guardian in Sydney and I went on to work at the Canberra Press Gallery, which are both bigger places to work, but it was to be 18 in a newspaper newsroom in a place like the Gold Coast seemed so big to me then because I was, a country town it was phenomenal it was yeah like a very exhilarating experience and a very steep learning curve (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. and like the stuff the range of stuff that you get to do as well like I think regional journalism is the best way to get started and actually um, it's probably the most accessible way to get started because jobs are less competitive Usually, I would say um, it's so much harder now, obviously, now that a lot of publications have closed um, or have gone online only, so there's even fewer opportunities. But I just like if I think about the stuff that I did, even in five years of like the range of stories that I did exactly,
2: and it also I would never have worked at The Guardian if I hadn't gone and worked at the Gold Coast Bulletin because I got hired as. as someone with experience in reporting and you have you get such amazing experience in reporting going to a regional area so I went from the Gold Coast to Brisbane Times and then did a bit of political reporting at Brisbane Times and then that's why I got hired at the Guardian I would never have been hired there you know straight out of uni or with no experience Yeah, experience yeah. yeah yeah it is an important job it's an interesting job and it is an important job um you know a lot of time I just never want to get filled with too much self-importance about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah definitely (laughs) and you know we have spoken a bit about your writing process and you know when you handed the book in and everything but I am curious as a journalist then writing nonfiction, did the publishing process this time feel different for you compared to when you were writing your novel?
2: Um, Both of them I really had to recalibrate myself for but I think the one good thing that I take from being a journalist is that I'm really good at getting words on the page. So I didn't I don't struggle to write the book as a whole because I think I look at my week the week ahead and I think I've got that morning, that evening and you know two hours on Saturday at midday. I'm gonna sit down for those two hours each time and I'm gonna write for the whole two hours or I'm gonna sit down and get to two thousand words. Anytime I write more than two thousand words, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, like it's just complete shit after that two thousand. <laughs> so never go more than two thousand for me. I think that each writer has their their own limit. But I'm I'm really good at, you know, once I decide to sit down and do it, I would sit down and I would get words on the page. And I wouldn't be too, well, if they were terrible or uh, that I thought it was mucked because I knew it was just the first draft. But it definitely takes some recalibrating where you're, you're trying to hold the book in your head and you're trying to hold basically 70,000 words in your head when what you're more used to writing is 800 to 1,200 words at a time to make sense. And so, yeah, you have to. I think that even some of my essays, you can see a little bit of the journalist in me because some of them are really divided up into, uh, not that it's with subheadings, but in my head I can see it. There's my 1,000 words on this topic, there's my 1,000 words on that, and there's my (laughs) 1,000 words here, and there's my 500-word conclusion. Like if I broke it up into those parts, it was easy to write. But, yeah, it does take a bit of getting used to to hold an entire book in your head and even to have the space to um, I kept thinking people were going to get bored of reading this, you know, oh, this is too long. Like, cause you're trained so much in journalism to only write, you know, people are only going to read 800 words or whatever on it. And so I had to kind of talk myself out of that a lot. Like, no, it's a whole book, Bridie. Like people are there to read a book. They're go- people they are not they're, they're <laughs> They don't expect you to explain everything in 800 words. So I definitely have to um, kind of almost teach myself to use more words let the quotes go longer like and tell the story over over longer words
1: yeah not really cut yourself down like you're being like you're used to did any part of like actually going through the publishing you know editing everything like that compared to like novel versus non-fiction was there something that surprised you
2: uh I think that the editing and publishing process of the fiction uh put me in good stead for the non-fiction what shocked me is how many times you have to read your book like you have to read it so many times and how many times you have to edit you definitely do not edit this much in journalism you know in journalism close enough (laughs) is good enough basically is the so perfecting something uh really surprised me and how long it takes as well you know also just people getting back to you on emails you know in journalism it's like you have to, people have to get back to you straight away within an hour. We all respond to each other almost immediately in publishing. I can tell that people in publishing are only checking their emails once or twice a day. And I'm just like, wow. And cause I always get responses at the same time every day. Always
1: get responses at 4.00 PM after all the meetings. Yeah. Is that what's going on?
2: Because it is 4.00 (laughs) PM. And me and my mate Rick Morton spoke about this. I was like, do you always get your emails at 4.30? He said, yeah. I thought he's like, I didn't know what's going on. You think? And then I I said, I, they must divide their day up in uh, time because we, we, we weren't thinking anyone was slacking. We just know that they're in such a different workplace to what we're used to, where, you know, you would be called like three times if you haven't responded to an email within eight minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so that's the thing that I have to adjust to as well. Like not everyone, when you work in a news environment, you have to be on top of everything at all times. Whereas the publishing process is such a nicer, slower, more thoughtful process and it takes a bit of getting used to but once you get into that way of thinking is great fantastic it's a great way to be thinking it's a much much better way to be thinking
1: I know we're not exactly in a rush in the publishing it's
2: good. it's great
0: <laughs> the amount of emails I used to receive was absolutely obscene and I didn't have like anywhere near an important job like I don't know how my boss ever coped with the amount of stuff and it makes sense that he would often just like you'd have to keep following up and keep following up and keep following up, yeah, until
2: you' got. It. and even like if I give feedback on a piece, you know, it's usually within a day because i I obviously edit um, a lot of pieces. So I'll give my feedback within a day, and then it was so funny coming to publishing where people like, takes six weeks to you submit it and then six weeks later you get your response to your manuscript I'm like what is going on they hate it they forgot forgotten about <laughs> like, what's me what's taking you so long <laughs> yeah, and, then, and every journalist I know who has written a book we've we we've all had to get used to that and like once I wrote my first one and a journalist mate submitted his manuscript to his publisher and he said I think they hate it I haven't heard anything back in two weeks and I was like babe don't expect it for at least another month and even then it'll be quick <laughs>
0: That is such a good thing to keep in mind. I love that. Yeah, I'm so used to, like, immediate feedback.
1: It is funny, though, because, like, in publishing, like, publishing people love journalists because they can write and we know that you'll actually get words on paper. Um, but, yeah, the other way around, you mustn't like <laughs> working with publishing that much because we take so long to get back to you oh no, on everything.
2: <laughs> once, once you're used to it, it's awesome because I never feel – uh, pressure on myself to write back to an email straight away. But you just have to adjust and get used to it. And I yeah. did think that publishers must love journalists because we're so used to deadlines. So I think that even my publisher might have been, I haven't asked her this, but I think she might have been a bit surprised when I handed in my book in November. I think that in her head she was thinking, it's a global health pandemic and Brighty's just had a baby in June. I'm probably not getting this book for you know, another few, I think that she thought that. And I think it was quite surprising to her when I hit it, when I did. Uh, when I did my novel, I um, finished my edits. My edits were due on November 28 and my baby was due on December 14. Oh, wow. And I got it in I got it in on time. And I think back then my publisher then was amazed and not expecting the book. And then when I was in labor, um, they had the, an editor going over the first edits of it. And when I was in labor, I was responding to emails from her. And then I said something like, oh, I don't think I'm going to respond for the next couple of days now because I'm in labour. I still hadn't gotten used to, you know, you don't have to respond to every email immediately in publishing. Oh, my God. And the email was like, I'm about to have a baby, so I might stop replying soon. And she was like, I know, I needed my my advice on not working too hard back then, eh? (laughs) And and focusing on what's important, like delivering your baby. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: Although to be fair, maybe maybe having a bit of distraction then is not necessarily a bad thing. Actually,
2: you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I <laughs> think that you're right because I was left alone for a little bit, and so that's why I did it. But um, but yeah, she she was like, "What are you doing? You're insane! Can you go back to having your baby and not worry about these dumb edits? Like it can wait." Um, just
0: something that's that's interesting to go from writing fiction to nonfiction. So obviously, with this book, your agent suggested that you pitch it. So with your novel, was that what was the process there? Did you already have an agent at that point or did you like write the manuscript and then get the agent?
2: No, so I, um, I wrote 50,000 words of my novel, which was like the first draft of my novel. It had the beginning, middle and end, but I knew it was going to have to be a bit longer, but I thought what's here is good enough to pitch. And I kind of felt I had this looming deadline on myself because I finished those 50,000 words when I was about four months pregnant. And I thought, I don't know why, but I think I thought my life was going to be over when I had a kid. So I thought I've got to get this sorted before I have a kid. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fall off the edge of the earth. No one's ever going to hear from me again. I'm definitely <laughs> not going to get a book deal. So I've got to get this sorted. Um, so I I forget where I read the advice, but i would read the advice somewhere that if, if you want to get an agent look at the acknowledgements in books that are similar to yours and they'll think their agent. And then you contact the agent with your pitch. So I uh, read a book. That's an amazing trick.
1: People
2: Isn't that an amazing bit of advice? And so I, I tell it to people all the time. And so I read a book that I thought was market. It wasn't a novel, but it was marketed at a similar uh, market to what I thought my novel would be. And, um, Jean Rickmans, my agent, who's now my agent, her name was in the acknowledgements. And I just emailed her on LinkedIn because I couldn't find her email. And it's a good thing I couldn't because the website said they weren't taking any new clients, but I didn't know that. So I just emailed her on LinkedIn with a brief bio of myself and a brief outline of my book. She rang me straight away and said, yeah, send me, send me what you've got. And um, so I sent her the 50,000 words and she rang me the next day when she had read like 15,000 of them and said, yep, I'll, I'll sign you. I think that there's something here. And it it went to auction, that 50,000 words. And mm-hmm. I got a book deal. It doesn't happen like this for everyone, but that, that advice about how to find an agent, I think is very sound. And yeah, it went to auction and I got a publisher and then we knew that I'd have to work on it. And so I wrote about another 20,000 words and did big structural edits on the novel after that. But yeah, that's how... That's how it happened. And I I have had a book rejected before as well, so don't think it's all plain sailing. I pitched a second novel and I had about 30,000 words of that and it got rejected by every publisher in town. So don't feel like it's all smooth sailing or if you don't get it in the first time, that, you know, life is over for you. You just got to keep having a crack.
0: Or indeed, if you're having a baby, life is not over.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, I've got heaps of stuff since I've had the baby, and it's been fine. And everyone seems to still think I've got a brain, and you know, and I still have time to do lots of stuff. Yeah, it's it's yeah. fine. A baby's not books. the end of your life. It. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: No, that, that,
0: the reason we like asking questions around that is because everybody's story is different, um, and I do think that like hearing how other people have done it. Plus we've never had that advice before about looking for agents. So I think that is it's so obvious brilliant. once you
2: hear it though, isn't yeah. it? It is so yes. obvious once you hear it. But I yeah, It never really did. is so obvious. Yeah. That's such a good hack. Yeah. <laughs> that that was just for me. I think that I just researched heaps, obviously the journalist in me, how to get a book deal. And so I just I read tons of message boards and all that type of thing. But I always love hearing about the process as well because everyone I know is different too in how they got their book deals and how they pitched it. You know, some people go direct to publisher and not everyone has an agent, but I think if you get picked, I think if you're an unknown writer, an agent is definitely a better way to go than trying to cold pitch the publisher.
0: Yeah, and as you said, if you're doing some sort of nonfiction as well, um, I mean, I have a friend, um, Fiona, who's, working on nonfiction at the moment and having an agent has been really helpful for her because she's had someone to thrash out those ideas with and like structures of the novel and stuff before you know pitching it to a publisher and stuff so that can be really helpful as well especially if they specialize in that too
2: yeah oh well, it was my agent's idea to pitch this as a book and it was and she obviously could see I would do well at it or that I had enough thoughts for because she's known me a couple of years by this point. But I mm. haven't, it hadn't even occurred to me to pitch nonfiction or write nonfiction.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been
2: so much fun to chat oh with Oh my you. God. It's <laughs> been one of my favorite interviews by far. Thank you so much. Oh, thank Aww. you.
1: I I have to say I was really excited like to read your book and I hoped that we would be able to get you on our podcast because we like chatting to people. But I really knew that you would like this, Michelle, and that is clear because mm-hmm. you've been like <laughs> rambling and praising Brad entire time. <laughs> so I'm glad that you liked it, and I'm glad this worked out. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm glad you said you liked the interview too, because like the whenever we interview journalists, um, and you know. I mean, we interview lots of amazing writers, but with journalists in particular, I'm like, oh my God, are our questions okay? Like they ask questions for a living. Like they're going to be judging our questions.
2: No, God, your questions are so thoughtful and so interesting. It's been great. You got the book. You just want to be interviewed by someone who gets the book, basically.
1: Well, we're so glad that
0: you think we did a good job. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So where can people find and follow you online?
2: So Twitter, I'm at B K Jabour J A B O U R. Instagram is way more fun. I have way fewer followers there, so it's way more fun. So on Instagram, I'm at B K as well, and those are the two main places.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so so much. Congratulations again on the release of the book. Um, please please have a huge party once you're allowed to to celebrate the book.
2: Oh my god, yes, I will be having a massive <laughs> party. To indoor parties when this is over. <laughs> okay.
1: Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at Better Words Pod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished
0: Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.